You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest is Michael Martin. He's the founder of Rapid SOS. The website is uh, rapidsos.com. So, Michael, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be on. Yeah, so tell me about uh, Rapid SOS. What's the premise of the company? Yeah, so Rapid SOS is an advanced emergency technology company. So, we've spent the last six years working with uh, thousands of 911 telecommunicators and first responders across the United States to figure out basically how we can provide more life-saving data and content into those systems during an emergency. So most of, most of us uh, often aren't really uh, aware of how these systems work, but there's over 6,000 different 911 centers across the United States, and they're running over 25,000 different software systems. So the result is that when you have an emergency in this country, you're often hitting actually technology that dates all the way back to the 1960s and is basically just an analog voice. So we provide rich data in there from partners like Apple and, and, and Google and Uber and other uh, major technology companies. Yeah, I could see like even in the interest of national security, it would be a treasure trove of, in, of information if it was all linked and if it was savable and if you could you know, look at the database of what's happening and where and index it. And uh, I would think that, yeah, I don't know if it's allowed to, but I would think that the government would be very interested in modernizing it again and looking at that data. Yeah, I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's actually not nearly as sophisticated as that. It's not some sort of uh, national window into the health of the U.S. emergency system. It, it actually comes down to really basic stuff that blows, you know, would, would I think blow most of our minds if you knew it, it actually didn't exist previously. So, for example, um, when you call 911 today, most calls cannot be located. Um, or they come in on a delay, I should say. Um, so the result is that uh, the FCC estimated in 2014 that there were over 10,000 lives a year that could be saved if we could just more accurately locate people in an emergency. So this is actually really fundamental stuff that um, in the middle of a heart attack, assault, kidnapping, if you can't verbally articulate your name, address, and what is occurring, it's, it's often very difficult uh, to find you or, or, or send help. So um, Working on things like that, working on connecting uh, a variety of, of um, real-time sensor data directly to first responders. So I always think about, for example, the Oakland fire, which occurred about two years ago um, in December 2016. And if you saw the interview of the two survivors, they actually ran out of that building, called 911, unfortunately got routed to um, not the local 911 center, and they had a very hard time transferring the call because um, the, the two survivors didn't know their location. So it wasn't until actually they were able to, yeah, it wasn't until they actually ended up running up the street to the fire department and getting help that way. Now in 2016, right, like 
you know, particularly um, as we continue to move forward, like the building should call 911. And first responders should know that the smoke density is X and the temperature is Y and that there's, in this case, there was 36 people that were trapped in the northwest corner that, that ended up uh, dying in that incident, one of the deadliest fires in U.S. history. So we work to kind of take all that data and put it directly into the hands of 911 first responders uh, in an emergency. Yeah, I would think even if it's not going to be taken nationally, at least on a local level, 911 essentially is an extension of policing. It's an extension of fire. It's an extension of a lot of things. So all those departments really need each other's data and need to work together to be more effective. I mean, yeah, the 911 telecommunicators, I mean, these really are the first first responders. You can think of it that way, right? So every day across the United States, we have 650,000 911 calls that are made, and it's the, the worst moments of someone's life, right? And these really, these heroes on the front lines of those emergencies, they're managing those calls every moment of every day. And prior to us, they were doing that. It was just a a, a, a copper wire voice conversation. So I'll never forget, uh, Richard, my very first 911 call that I had a, a, the chance to listen in on. It was in rural Massachusetts, and it was a mother who called after her son had committed suicide. He hung himself in, in their closet. Um, and she was just hysterical, right, as she called. Um, and I, I lasted about 15 seconds on that call. I took off my headset, and I actually walked outside. But that 911 telecommunicator didn't have that luxury. She had to stay on the phone for the next 15 minutes, figure out the location, and continue speaking to that mother until the ambulance arrived. And then she had to do that for the rest of her 12-hour shift. So it's hard to verbally articulate just how intense it is to have this job and how tremendously more difficult and frustrating it is when you have one of those callers that's in one of those circumstances and you can't even locate them. Um, one other quick example, many of us may have seen a few years ago, uh, the national television, uh, awareness commercial on a domestic violence, uh, abuse case where the woman called 911 and, and pretended to order a pizza. So her husband was, uh, being abusive in that moment. And obviously 911 didn't get the location. So she, luckily she was smart enough to pretend she was ordering a pizza and actually gave her address that way. So it, it really is just extraordinary the work that 911 is doing every day. Well, I mean, cell phones, smartphones seem to have special features where you can make a 911 call even if your service isn't activated. So why is there still a disconnect? I mean, like, who who is the one that allocates funding for 911 in different areas? And, you know, who are you interacting with to try to improve the technology? Yeah, it, it's a very complicated system. But I think um, you're, you're absolutely correct, Richard, that, like, the, the voice component of 911 works extraordinarily well. Um, I mean, it, it is so when you dial 911, you're given priority on the network and you're very quickly going to reach the nearest 911 center. Uh, the challenge is, is that that system dates back, as I mentioned, to uh, the 1960s and 1970s and the infrastructure behind it. And the result is that it can't accommodate data. It's actually limited to only 512 bytes of data. Uh, I'll just kind of put that in perspective. Um, the very first transatlantic telegram between the Queen of England to President Buchanan in 1858 had 617 bytes of data. So here we are 160 years later, and when you call 911, they typically don't even get your name. So it is remarkably how antiquated this infrastructure is. Um, so it is funded typically at a local and state level. There's basically very little national oversight of our of our 911 system. And it really developed, as I mentioned, in the 1960s and 1970s with 
over uh, over 10,000 municipalities looking at how they could put in their own system. Um, and so that was some of the challenges that we needed to work uh, work through was how do we interface into this very fragmented 911 system that we have in the U.S. And that's crazy. Um, so what yeah, you said the technology is very antiquated. So you know the whole premise of your company is to improve this. So so what uh, what's the mechanism by which you're doing it? What are you up to? Yeah. So um. So what we found is we went and we studied this. So my, we, we actually found it out of grad school. Uh, my co-founder was at MIT at the time doing his uh, PhD, and I was at, at Harvard doing a master's program. So that summer, um, I borrowed my dad's Prius and actually drove um, about 1,500 miles that summer and, and amazingly had uh, thousands of 911 officials who were willing to meet with me. Um, so the more, the, the deeper we went into this industry, what we, cha- what we realized was the challenge was not necessarily the software systems that were running at the 911 centers, it was just the lack of content that was able to feed into them over this antiquated, often still analog voice infrastructure. So what we've worked on over the last six years is how do we upgrade those systems into this rich data framework? So you can almost, this wouldn't be a, a accurate statement, but it's, it's a little bit of analogous. You can say where we're moving from a copper wire into those 911 centers into a rich fiber optic pipe, if you will, where we can fit a lot more content. And obviously, when you switch the paradigm from voice to... What if you could learn about the ketogenic diet and metabolic therapy from the world's top scientists, physicians, and influencers in a four-day experience co-hosted by Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, who's been on the Tim Ferriss podcast in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. If you want to hear about the latest scientific evidence on nutrition and metabolism, and its potential to treat disease, increase longevity, improve athletic performance, and yes, help with weight loss. Metabolic Health Summit is for you. Some of the speakers include Dominic D'Agostino, PhD, Mark Sisson, Suzanne Ryan of Keto Karma, Thomas Seyfried, uh, who studies metabolism and cancer, Aubrey Marcus, Georgia Ede, MD, Matt and Mega of Keto Connect, and many, many more speakers. At this conference, we're going to dive into the research and learn how to apply it during real-world applications with four days of presentations. There'll be nightly receptions with keto-friendly drinks and appetizers. There'll be a scientific poster session that includes the latest research on ketosis, human optimization, and more. And there'll be new innovative products at the Metabolic Health Summit Keto Expo. You'll get to network with some of the world's most brilliant minds at the Metabolic Health Summit VIP Mixer and Gala Dinner. For physicians, this activity is jointly provided by Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and the Metabolic Health Initiative. Cedars-Sinai is accredited by ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Earn up to 21 and a half AMA PRA Category 1 credits by attending. If you're a registered dietitian, this event has received prior approval by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for 18 CPEs. Visit MetabolicHealthSummit.com or click on the banner and get your tickets before they're gone because it's coming soon. Remember, it's in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. We are only weeks away. This is a must-not-miss seminar. Data, you really need to do that well. Um, so that's where we've spent um, about four years in various types of focus groups with hundreds of 911 centers to figure out if, if you're moving into a world where, for example, you might have real-time heart rate or blood pressure or vehicle telematics data, 
how do you actually make that useful to an emergency response um, rather than just having an information overload sort of scenario? So we've worked um, with these 911 centers. We have over 50 public safety software companies that are partners of ours to develop the interfaces so that 911 telecommunicators and increasingly actually all the way out into the ambulance and the first responder network, they can actually um, receive this data and it's a present it to the right place at the right time in the response. Uh, so the impact uh, we're typically seeing in the range of between uh, 30 seconds and over seven minutes faster response uh, in an emergency, which can be pretty profound uh, for, for many, many types of emergencies. So, all right, so you've been speaking to a lot of 911 uh, companies or organizations. So what's the rollout plan? What is it going to look like, where and when, and you know, what are you going to be doing? Yeah, so um, so today we're managing about 60% of U.S. 911 traffic, providing life-saving data for it. So uh, we are live in about uh, over, uh, over 2,200 different public safety agencies. Uh, these are many of the largest uh, ones in the United States, so cities like uh, Los Angeles, uh, Denver, Seattle, Portland, Chicago, et cetera. Um, and then that content uh, is, as I mentioned, we, we power over 250 million Americans, uh, whether it's various smartphone connected devices or uh, uh, connected vehicles, connected home, digital health devices, et cetera. So we merge all this content together around an emergency, and then we uh, we present it in a way that is useful to drive a faster, more effective response. Okay. I mean, can you uh, clarify a little bit on content and you know what that means to help the response rate and the response yeah. efficacy? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's location uh, primarily, um, but it could also be, uh, we have 12 and a half million people that have, have added their health profile into our databases. Um, we power a number of uh, connected car platforms uh, so let, let's just maybe uh, spend a minute on that as an example. So if your vehicle is in a crash previously, you know, as you come up in that day, you would need to find your phone wherever it was in your car, dial the number. And then obviously the challenge there is, is, is not, even just knowing your location, you're somewhere on the highway, right? But knowing that exact location is very difficult uh, typically. So uh, now what occurs is the vehicle itself actually transmits the core data directly to 911 and first responders. So the location of the crash, the crash severity, uh, potentially that there's three people in the vehicle, things like that. Okay, all right, that's good. So what is the rollout of this gonna look like? Is it definitely gonna happen or are you working on it or what's, you know, what's the plan for you? Yeah, as I mentioned, so we're now, uh, we cover, uh, we provide this this data to about 65% of U.S., uh, our, our 911 centers covering about 65% of the U.S. population, and we power about 250 million connected devices today. Uh, so starting with just really basic stuff like uh, providing location on a, on a smartphone 911 call to a variety of, of services where people use um, various vehicle crash response services or uh, senior care services like a, a help by falling and can't get up type of service or a uh, home security service. We, we increasingly power a lot of those different systems. Okay. All right. So uh, again, over the next six months or a year, what do you think is going to be the trajectory of uh, the growth or the rollout of this? Yeah. So there's uh, basically two major initiatives for us uh, over this, this next year. Um, so this past year we went uh, from about uh, uh, 10,000 connected devices to over 250 million uh, raised $46 million for the for the company and, and uh, grew the team about 140%. Um, so we, we largely now, as I mentioned, are managing most U.S. 911 traffic. And so for 
for 2019, obviously, it's, it's making sure that every 911 system in the U.S. has access to this technology, and we, we do provide it for free to public safety. So we're just going to be reaching those, that, that final 35% of the, the country that doesn't yet have access. And then we are starting our international expansion. So uh, we're, we're currently uh, live in one other country, and we have uh, about a, a dozen or so other countries that are waiting on access. So global emergency communication largely follows the U.S. model. Uh, which means in most parts of the world, when you have an emergency, you need to dial a phone number and have a coherent conversation in the middle of that emergency. So we're working to shift that paradigm from, again, from voice to life-saving data uh, on a global scale. And the data itself, what do you think is going to, I mean, what happens to it now? Is it just logged somewhere or where does it go and what do you think is going to happen with the data what should happen with it in the future yeah so we're not a data company and, and we don't retain data so uh, we just transfer it to the appropriate uh, 911 or first responder agency that's managing that emergency uh, and we only do it actually uh, where we we have coverage so for example uh, if you dial 911 in a part of the country where we, we aren't we don't yet have the system live um, then actually that data actually never comes into us. Um, so the way it works is if you're in an agency where, where we are live, we've actually geofenced all those agencies um, for our partners. Um, so if you're on a, a smartphone and you call 911 and you're in an agency that, that we are live in, um, the location data passes through our infrastructure into that local 911 system. And then the 911 system obviously is, is using that data as appropriate for that, for that emergency. So. Um, so if your location, they're, they're certainly going to use that to send a police or fire or ambulance to you, depending on the type of help you need. Um, in those cases, the agency might, uh, might store that data, but, but obviously we're, we're just the pipes to get it there. Is there any, uh, initiative to make, you know, the smartphone, perhaps the, uh, the core of the interaction with the 911 system, or, you know, do a lot of people still call in from landlines? Like when the calls come in, where do they tend to come from? Is there any intelligence on that? Yeah, it is. Um, most U.S. 911 calls do come from smartphones today. Uh, the growth of wireless has uh, been obviously uh, significant. It's, and, and so today you have about 240 million 911 calls nationally. Approximately 80 to 85 percent of those are coming from cell phones. And obviously the vast majority of those calls today are from smartphones. Um, so this actually created more challenges for uh, for 911, it, it's kind of ironic. We think that um, as we move forward in technology, 911 would naturally get better. But actually, what was occurring is when we switched from from landline calls that had a fixed billing address that 911 was able to receive to a mobile call, that actually created this this location challenge. So, um, so the the way the uh, legacy 911 system used to work is you would call 911 and then the phone number was affiliated with a billing address, and 911 would receive that, and they knew exactly where to send help. So as we entered the mobile era back in the 1980s, you started seeing that they just couldn't locate these calls, and that's unfortunately largely persisted uh, to uh, forward into 2018 and 2019. So, uh, so that's an example where we're now starting to leverage the capabilities of the smartphone to pass all this, this data. Uh, another example here would be our work with Uber, where for passengers that, that need help on a ride, so for example, you, you get a, if someone's having a heart attack in the back of an Uber or something like that, um, there's now an ability to call 911 through the Uber app and we actually transmit a variety of additional information about the ride, such as the make, model, color of the vehicle, the license plate number, and obviously the, the location as well. 
Would the goal be then to embed a 911 type app in the smartphone itself or some kind of functionality that would let people, you know, again, call 911, you know, besides dialing on the phone, I don't know, some other way, maybe they could speak into it or someone else could speak. I don't know. I mean, I guess there'd be various mechanisms and capture all yeah. the data that you need. Yeah, so you, you, you may have actually seen, so um, most of the leading smartphone manufacturers have actually built in uh, some of this functionality today. So um, whether it's hitting the side button on, a, on an Apple phone five times or Samsung device, there, there's, um, or the emergency SOS functionality on, on some of the smart watches, you are seeing um, a variety of ways in which users can better interact um, from a UX standpoint with, with 911 to at least initiate an emergency. Obviously, that's just scratching the surface on what you can do in a data world, um, particularly around major disaster instant, uh, scenarios. So, um, for example, during, during uh, Hurricane Harvey, you had such a large influx of 911 traffic that at peak moments, you had up to a 45-minute wait time to get through. And, and the, the 911 telecommunicators in, in greater Harris County and, and in the Houston area were doing just extraordinary work you know, working night and day to staff at peak levels for that. But there was just so much demand to be rescued uh, during that scenario. So you can imagine where a data-driven approach could really be helpful there, where people could mark that, hey, they needed water rescue. Um, and we could actually coordinate all that geospatially. And so now um, when, say, a rescue boat arrives at an apartment complex, they know exactly that there's 12 people located in that building and they know the precise location of those 12. Um, so there's there's certainly all sorts of ways that this can head longer term, but obviously today we're, we're, we're just trying to do really fundamental things like transmit um, baseline location information and to the extent that, that users have opted into some sort of service, relevant health and medical data, vehicle telematics, et cetera. All right, well, very good. So what's the best way for... Uh interested parties to get in contact, ask questions, and, you know, maybe collaborate on, on various projects? Yeah, so th this is, uh, I, I would say, in general, there's two different groups that, that we often work with. So certainly any sort of connected device company that wants to pass that data to directly to 911 during an emergency. Uh, so we do have a API that you can access on our website, rapidswest.com. Uh, it's uh, uh, somewhat similar to like a Twilio setup or something like that. And then obviously for any first responder agency, you can access this technology for free. Uh, and that's also um, through our website, rapidswest.com. Uh, in general, uh, anyone can get a hold of us at info at rapidswest.com. Uh, and then we're based in, uh, in New York City. So. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and uh, the service is definitely needed. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me, Richard. And it's uh, really great to spend a few minutes with you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. 
No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.